There are no borders with Bitcoin, and from the beginning, its disruption has been global. Tune in to Borderless as Coindesk reporters Anna Badikova, Danny Nelson, and Tanzil Akhtar dissect their top most recent Bitcoin and cryptocurrency stories from around the world. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder that Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome to Borderless. I'm Anna Baidakova. I'm Danny Nelson. And I'm Tanzi Alexar. Hey there, crypto folks. I hope you missed this tiny little podcast while we were on our break, rethinking and reformatting this show for a couple months. And finally, we're back. In this new version of The Borderless, our great regulatory reporter Nick Day left us, which is bummer, but our new UK reporter Tanzil Akhtar joins us, which is cool. Welcome, Tanzil. Hey, Anna. We're trying to make this show as global and, uh, yeah, borderless as possible, so hope you enjoy it and let us know what you think by all possible means. So let's go. On today's show... The fallout of the American democracy live streamed on a Justin Sun-owned service. Sounds like a double kill. Iran trying to take control over Bitcoin mining while the rest of the world is trying to take control over Iran. And Europe wants yet more regulation for Bitcoin. Surprise! So let's start with the story you covered recently, Tanzil. So yeah, thanks, Anna. So earlier this month, the video streaming platform DLive, which is owned by Tron founder Justin Sun, has come under fire after being used by far-right extremists to live stream the deadly riots at the US Capitol building. So this happened on the 6th of January. The building was stormed by rioters supporting Donald Trump and unfortunately left five people dead, including a Capitol police officer and many wounded. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a non-profit legal organization, the DLive platform was used by extremists and neo-fascists as a streaming alternative to YouTube due to its lack of moderation. So DLive reaps rewards from the extremist funding and takes around like 25% from every donation with 20% going to the platform itself and 5% is redistributed to other DLive users using its staking system. So since um, DLive was founded, it has allowed hundreds of thousands of dollars to be sent to extremists through donations of cryptocurrency via facility built into the site. So there's definitely some evidence that crypto is being used as a funding rail for extremism, and not only among homegrown groups, like the ones who stormed the Capitol last week. The US government seized millions of dollars in crypto from foreign groups last year, including jihadist groups, who allegedly asked for donations in Bitcoin. And they weren't just doing this on fringe platforms like DLive. Lawmakers have called out Twitter and Facebook by name for hosting these campaigns and not doing nearly enough to stop them. It's kind of hard to quantify how much money these groups are actually raising in crypto. And I personally doubt, even though you know I don't have any hard evidence, that the majority of their funds are coming through in Bitcoin. But this is certainly a large enough problem that lawmakers in the US are taking notice And they even did so before this story about DLive has come out. A few weeks ago, two lawmakers in the U.S. introduced bipartisan legislation that calls upon Twitter and Facebook to take that stronger stance against terrorists using crypto for fundraising and also to study the issue more broadly. Now, of course, when you're a lawmaker and you don't actually want to get anything done, one of the best things that you can do is introduce 
legislation to create a study to study a problem because that doesn't actually end up doing anything. And if it does, it's years away. So this is a problem that is really front and center, but also will take years and years to resolve from a legislative standpoint. Unrelated to how centralized or decentralized DLive is, and if it's using crypto or not, people are going to move from the platforms that censors them to the ones that either don't or haven't yet. So DLive just happened to be that one. In this case, I guess, actually, the platform itself censored the extremist content after January 6th. And it made a statement that it's, again, all the malevolent stuff. But here is the conundrum. We are here in the blockchain decentralized anti-censorship land. And my question has always been like, okay, but should the platforms like that actually do it? Should they censor content and the platform users if we that censorship resistance and decentralized and blah, blah, blah? Because we all want our social media free of toxicity, but we also want them free. We want free speech and decentralization. What if anything that is actually decentralized and free gonna be inevitably toxic? Because human beings happen to be toxic sometimes. You either let them be or censor them the hell out. Safe space is not equal to free space. Like you can't get them at once. I'm not sure if the technology helps here. Like that's kind of a philosophical question that hasn't been resolved yet. What do you guys think? Speaking of toxic individuals, well, you can't forget the person who's actually running the DLive platform, Justin Sun. And I know you've done a lot of reporting in the past about Justin Sun's less than wonderful ties to different businesses and also his, his uh, personal practices. Well, I actually didn't do that much, but thankfully the journalistic community did. I think it's worth mentioning how sad has been the fate of uh, almost everything Justin Sun owned, uh, even before DLive. He used to run early on in his tech career a Chinese app for online dating named Paywall. It ended up getting kicked out of app stores. Then he started the Tron blockchain, was caught plagiarizing other projects. White papers, but still raised $70 million during the 2017 ICO frenzy. Now Tron is doing relatively well, and recently Bitco launched wrapped Bitcoin and Ether on the Tron blockchain. Apparently, there is some demand for that. Then Tron bought BitTorrent, a legendary but not so well-off financially file-sharing service. What's have been going on in BitTorrent since then, you can read in an excellent investigation by The Verge. We're going to link to it in the show notes. And then DLive happened. And like, not too many conclusions here, but this looks like a chain of very unfortunate entrepreneurial events for Justin Sun. Talking about social media platforms, I think it's interesting the fact that the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, also recently tweeted publicly asking whether banning Trump was the correct thing to do. He kind of also laid out his rationale for the action and answered his own question with yes, and went on to praise Bitcoin as a technology that is not controllable or influenced to any single individual or entity. The entire context of deplatforming and centralized management of social media and censorship is part of this 
but like my question is, people used to say for a while that the technology can solve that, we can decentralize stuff, and then the social media platforms won't have such a huge single-handedly power, like we can introduce governance to the decentralized platforms. But like, did it really work? Maybe just not yet. Have we actually seen successful examples that would illustrate this thesis? When it comes to regulating social media? And- yeah, and the governance and decentralized structures actually doing what they're supposed to do, you know? No, I think we're all learning as we go along as well. Like if you think about what Darcy says about, you know, like kicking Trump off the platform, was it the right thing to do? He's kind of like questioning whether he did the right thing. And I think that parallels with how crypto is moving as well. Like there's no strict regulation. Everyone is kind of feeling their way around a new industry. Well, I mean, if you think about, you know, the thesis of Bitcoin, it's this idea that you, you don't actually have to trust anyone else that's using the network. Like you trust that it will work because you trust in the network, not because you trust the counterparties you're transacting with. And that's really what Jack is so passionate about. And, you know, I mean, when he's, he's advocating for Twitter and he's advocating for the projects that Twitter's actually building in the decentralized space, I think it's an open question whether you can really marry the merits of decentralization and the censorship that big tech is being called upon to introduce to the world right now. I'm very interested to see how Dorsey goes forward with this. Like, yeah, he says that he's very torn about what to do with Trump, but at the end of the day, they move forward with banning Trump, which is a pretty drastic uh, mm-hmm. action to take. And in this future of social media, when you've got one side of the political spectrum calling on them to really tone back their, their censorship, uh, I'm wondering how companies like Twitter are going to react when they're building these decentralized platforms, such as Blue Sky. Yeah, but imagine this being decentralized, like you have stakeholders on the right and you have stakeholders on the left, and they're like fighting each other during the governance voting, and it just gets completely out of control. I mean, there is such a huge space for more chaos and mayhem here. I can't wait for social media platforms to get decentralized. Like, I'm really looking forward to that. But on a different note about censorship and centralized power, the government of Iran wants to control the crypto mining in the country. In the summer 2020, it demanded that all the miners register with the Ministry of Industry, Mines and Trade. Now the authority starts cracking down on those mining farms that haven't been registered yet. And early in January, they shut down as many as 1,620 mining farms. Iran obviously is struggling under the international sanctions and is hungry for any additional cash it can get. So Bitcoin mining is an easy target here. This is going to be a really interesting case. Bitcoin mining serving the interests of a nation state. I wonder what do you guys think about, given that Iran actually has quite a significant mining power and it contributed almost 4% of the global Bitcoin hash power, according to the University of Cambridge during this year. I I think we're we're really coming into the first full year of Iran's quote-unquote national mining strategy. This is a document that the president of Iran actually signed last year. 
And it's one of the few countries in the world that have adopted with this like, idea that it needs to pursue cryptocurrency mining as a national imperative. I think that Venezuela is one of the only other countries that are taking such a systemic approach to crypto mining. And I mean, it makes you think, why these two countries? It's because, in my opinion, they're being pursued on in the international economy with sanctions and all of these economic controls that are really limiting their ability to buy and sell goods. So when you're not allowed to use the US dollar to really do anything, a currency or a vehicle for moving money around that isn't controlled by the US government becomes a lot more appealing. And that's where Bitcoin comes in. So I think that they're really approaching this from a place of need. They need some way to move money around and Bitcoin might just be one of the ways that they're going to do it. Yeah, exactly. And actually, the central bank explicitly said that it's going to buy the freshly minted Bitcoins from miners and use them to fund the purchases of import goods. So that's like a nationwide project. Uh, but here is a catch. Yes, Bitcoin is that borderless and censorship resistant tool that even the ROG states can use. And like North Korea, for example, there were multiple reports that they used crypto to fund various stuff. Here you go, two U.S. mining firms, really large ones, just pledged to process only those Bitcoin transactions that are compliant with the U.S. regulations. And they explicitly mentioned they don't want to deal with Iran. These companies are Marathon Patent and DMG Blockchain Solutions, and our colleague Lee Quinn reported that for Motherboard. So here we go again, Iran getting deplatformed on the Bitcoin level. What about that censorship resistance? <laughs> yeah, so I think it's also worth mentioning that crypto mining is also worsening the air pollution in Iran as well. So as the country establishes itself as a mecca for crypto miners, the environmental consequences are also worth noting. Right. I wouldn't say it's Bitcoin mining that worsening pollution. It's the, the fact that fossil fuels are the main energy source in Iran, including for crypto mining. By the way, it's also the case in uh, some other nations, for example, Kazakhstan which is a large player on the mining market as well. They largely use coal. I mean, Chinese miners mostly rely on hydropower, but I think they also use some other fuels as well. So yeah, I think it's just a very interesting question of this like global balance. Where is the hash power? How do these providers of hash power interact with each other? Like, are we going to have just a pools of miners who work with Iran. Other miners don't work with Iran. Somebody work with the US. Some crypto companies exclude US users from their audience. It's really interesting to see this clusterization of this initially global and borderless system, which still does have borders when it comes to legal issues, politics, and so on. You know, I think that for Iran specifically, it really is bordered in terms of the length and the breadth of their cryptocurrency mining operations. I know for a fact that the US is very, very, very aggressive in pursuing any sanctions violators that they can. They just fined BitGo $93,000, I think, a couple of weeks ago 
for possible sanctions violations. I don't know if Iran had anything directly to do with that, but I do know for a fact that all of these companies and also individuals need to be wary about even coming close to transacting with Iran if they want to stay away from US government prosecution. Because with cryptocurrency, there's this idea that every transaction is public. And that means that it's extremely easy for the government to say, oh, look at that. I know that this money is flowing between person X and Iran. Therefore, go after that cryptocurrency. And they do that with uh, a lot of gusto. They'll come after any wallet whatsoever that's touched Iran. I'm wondering how well Iran will be able to integrate its mining operations into the global economy. For now, it might just be the way of, for them to create the Bitcoin and then do something with in the future. Yeah, exactly. It's like all Bitcoin transactions are equal, but some have this big red sign above them. Don't deal with me if you don't want to get in trouble with the US. Is that right? Is that natural for Bitcoin? That's just a, such an interesting question. Yeah, you could say that all of this Iran cryptocurrency mining is a kind of funny business. And funny business is certainly something that the global world powers are looking out for, especially in the European Union, where uh, ECB president Christine Lagarde, she just uh, Wednesday told Reuters that the world needs to adopt comprehensive regulation to stop criminals like money launders from turning to Bitcoin for help. Uh, she called this funny business. She didn't really elaborate beyond saying it's money laundering on what this funny business is or what the global regulation might look like. But just at the same time, the EU has gone out of its way to implement some very stringent controls around cryptocurrency. Last year, the bloc adopted pretty strict new anti-money laundering rules that increase exchanges' oversight responsibilities. It's a huge change for businesses operating in the region, and it's one that makes it a lot harder for uh, potential criminals to conduct illicit activity without being noticed. Yeah, so um, Lagarde's comments have actually riled quite a few of the people like crypto fans. It's also worth noting that this is not the first time Lagarde has criticized the crypto space. Back in 2018, when she was the head of the International Monetary Fund, she was also interviewed by CNN Money and she said, we're actively engaging in anti-money laundering and counterfeiting the financing of terrorism. And that reinforces our determination to work on those two directions. So back then, Lagarde was also cautioning that cryptocurrencies should be taken seriously and calling for global cooperation among worldwide regulators. Her public views on cryptocurrencies back then indicated that the IMF was actively involved in preventing the illicit use of crypto. But this was back in, what, 20, 2018? How much has changed since then? I mean, the ECB itself has been busy researching and preparing to launch the digital euro which is also worth watching. I mean, they're making quick progress on that front, I think. Another thing that I want to mention is that Europe itself is quite fragmented. Like I know Americans tend to see Europe as one big block, but it's a lot of different countries with different views. So obviously, I'm speaking as a Brit and we've actually Brexited. So I'm sure you're all aware of Brexit. We've left the European Union. But if you look at the European history, it took almost a decade of preparations to launch the euro, which was officially launched in 1999. And this had been the European Union's goal since 1960s. And it was launched to promote growth and economic integration in Europe. But 
out of the 44 countries that are part of the European Union, only 19 of the countries have adopted the euro. So yeah, I think that yeah. good old Europe gonna figure it out somehow, ultimately. And yeah, uh, Lagarde's words clearly irritated a lot of crypto folks. But on the other hand, the Bitcoin price didn't seem to react that much. It looks like Bitcoin is growing more and more immune to the regulators yelling at it. So as they used to say in the good old times, honey badger, don't give a f***. <laughs> but the- you guys should. <laughs> I remember like back in 2017, like whenever a regulator would say, you know, criticize Bitcoin, the price would crash. But the market has matured so much now. Whenever someone like Christine Lagarde says something negative about Bitcoin, the price doesn't crash as much. Have you guys noticed a difference over the years? I, I think for sure. And like really now, I think it's almost the opposite effect when these <laughs> regulators say, we, we really got to tamp down on this funny business. It's like a call to action for these <laughs> traders. So they're just, you know, piling money in, number <laughs> keeps going up. The number just keeps going up and up and up. The network is too big. There's too many people trying to jump in. I guess there's just maybe a sentiment that why should we care what these regulators are saying? They're not going to be able to take down the Bitcoin network entirely. Sure, they might be regulating the exchanges a little bit more, but apart from requiring these exchanges to collect personal information, which is something that you know banks and financial institutions in the traditional financial world already need to do, what are they going to do to Bitcoin that would really negatively affect the price? Maybe I'm not being creative enough, but I don't know what a regulator could do to actually make it illegal. Stop the network. <laughs> they, could, uh, they, could, they could make it illegal, but that won't actually stop anything. Going back to European fragmented, I think it's also very important. Danny, you wrote this story as well about Sweden. Sweden is quickly becoming a cashless society. So Europe, like parts of Europe, especially the Nordic region, you know, is moving as fast as China is when it comes to developing its own currency. So the Riksbank is researching whether to move Sweden onto like using the e-corona. So they are actually conducting research. It's interesting that, you know, Sweden, which is part of the European Union, is kind of like developing its own digital currency. So they're not all kind of like working together, if that makes sense. Well, they are, but they're not part of the currency block. Sweden doesn't use the euro. And so that's why they're able to to do that. They're definitely moving a lot faster than the the e-euro, whatever Lagarde and her cronies call it. (laughs) <laughs> um, but it, it is extremely interesting to see, like, like you said, with Sweden becoming a cashless society, this was a trend that's been happening for years, completely independent of you know, cryptocurrency. In Sweden, people just don't use cash. They, they use their credit cards. And in a world where physical hard cash isn't as popular, these banks like the Riksbank are thinking, do we need a, basically a national cryptocurrency to stay relevant? I don't think they've come to a conclusion yet, but they are moving forward much faster than really any other country in the world other than China in pursuing this vision. Yeah, I would say China is definitely number one when it comes to like developing the digital yuan. The way China is moving, especially is it the Shenzhen region? I think, Anna, you, you might be the best person to talk about this. Yeah, but that's actually a totally different part. And it's a huge topic of the, like, the central bank digital currencies multiple projects underway. Talking about Europe, I think, Tanzil, you are right. It's going to take like some time until these projects come to fruition. 
On the Bitcoin price matter, though, it looks like, you know, the, the Bitcoin price just manages to surge and crash, disregarding what regulators and bankers and whoever say, which is good or bad or depends on what are you doing and all of that. And if you are doing any of the funny business Lagarde mentioned, that will be interesting to see if actually the emergence of the digital currencies, of the national digital currencies by central banks going to impact the crypto industry in a notable way if the Chinese like Bitcoin and crypto less when they all have access to the digital yuan or that's going to be just a parallel thing and it's not going to impact the crypto industry at all. So that's something to watch. I think on that note, we can wrap it up. Thank you everyone for listening to us today. We discussed how the people stormed the DC capital on DLive, how Iran has been cracking down on miners and how Europe is trying to regulate Bitcoin. You can find more on all of that at coindesk.com. Please follow us and subscribe to this podcast. I'm Anna Baidakova. I'm Danny Nelson. And I'm Tanzia Lakta. You've been listening to Borderless. See you guys next week. You've been listening to Borderless, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. By subscribing to one feed with your favorite player, you'll get free access to all the shows from the editorial team at Coindesk, each focused on a particular niche, perspective, or ongoing discussion within the world of cryptocurrency. This episode featured Anna Badakova, Danny Nelson, and Tanzil Akhtar, with an announcement by Lila Ledesma. Today's show is produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Cody Martin. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcast at coindesk.com. 